0: If you haven't already, go to patreon.com forward slash the Korea file and throw me a few won a month. For the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, you can help support this podcast in a big way. Thanks. Now, here's the interview. A high-level South Korean diplomatic delegation visits Pyongyang. The 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Games were a huge success, and... What was up with the foreign ministers' meeting on security and stability on the Korean Peninsula organized by the Canadian government last January? That was weird.
1: <laughs>
0: Stephen Denny of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and senior editor with SinoNK.com joins me to talk about all this and more on episode 72 of the Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. high-level South Korean delegation's visit to North Korea this week has ended with a set of really exciting, really interesting proposals. A 10-member diplomatic team visited Pyongyang for talks, including two ministerial-level envoys, intelligence chief So and national security advisor Chang ui This was the first time officials from the South met with Kim Jong-un since he took office in 2011. The last time envoys from the South visited Pyongyang was in 2007. So, Stephen Denny, what did the Koreas agree to in principle in these
1: talks? Well, they agreed to uh, a number of things. Uh, First is another inter-Korean summit at the end of April to take place at Panmunjom, technically in South Korean territory. Um, They have agreed to establish a hotline, a North-South hotline that can be used to Reduce tensions, have conversations. North Korea has, uh, according to what our South Korean delocalists tell us, has agreed that it's willing to consider denuclearization if security is promised or guaranteed, which necessarily means talks with the United States uh, and probably talks about a peace treaty and uh, a reduction or removal of. U.S. forces, although they didn't say that much. North Korea has also promised that it won't uh, conduct any more missile or nukes tests while these talks are going on and that it won't attack uh, 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 South Korea. Uh, That last bit, I suppose, goes without saying, but uh, it it was said in any way, I guess, to ensure that South Korea thinks North Korea uh, is in... is is serious about this. A
0: lot of South Korean and American pundits are going to be quick to suggest that these kinds of summits have produced mixed results in the past, but peace is hard work, diplomacy is hard work, and previous high-level negotiations have produced positive results, haven't they? Remind us, what was the Sunshine Policy?
1: Sunshine Policy was uh, a South Korea's, North Korea strategy towards North Korea, which uh, was implemented and pursued during two liberal administrations from around 1997 to eight to 2007 by Noh Mu Hyun and Kim Dae-jung. Kim Dae-jung first and then Noh Hyun followed. It was, to put it simply, a, a policy, the objective of which was to normalize relations between North Korea and South Korea and to establish a, a framework for, so overall normalization of North, of North Korea it included such things as substantive cultural and economic exchange. Uh, during this time, I think most notably, the Kaesong Industrial Complex was built. There were tourists, South Korean tourists going into uh, to North Korea at Kumgang Mountain, and uh, there were uh, regular uh, talks between the two Koreas. Uh, notably, there were two summits, first in 2000. Kim Dae-jung was the first summit. It was a, a pretty well-received one uh, that was supposed to symbolically indicate a new era of north-south relations. The next liberal administration under Noh mui would also hold a summit in 2007. Uh, it was uh, less than thrilling, underwhelming almost, because by that time, uh, relations between North and South Korea and North Korea and the world really had begun to slip, because at that time, uh, the Six Party talks, which were sort of taking place in the background, Uh, And inter-Korean dialogue had sort of stalled or or come to uh, a halt. North Korea had, by that time, was well into its nuclear weapons development. In 2006, it tested a weapon. So the good thing about this, and the thing which you allude to quite correctly, is that the Sunshine Policy and substantive transformative engagement had the effect of, of Uh, Bringing about an unprecedented level of diplomatic and cultural exchange between the two Koreas, which you could argue had a positive effect on uh, South Korea and the world's understanding of of what North Korea is or could be. Uh, But at the same time, it also highlighted and underscored some of the difficulties of resolving, really, what is at the heart of this, uh, a deep substantive conflict, and that is the, the still sort of unresolved Korean War, which is still, as journalists like to write, technically ongoing.
0: And I think a really important word here is framework, because when you have that sort of foundation in place, it's possible to make progress in the face of the hostility and the freeze that still exists uh, 60 years after the end of that war. And what kind of effect did the hostility and the ideology of the Imyoungbak and Park Gunhei administrations have on inter Korean relations regarding the progress that was being made with the Gaesong complex and other aspects of the Sunshine Policy?
1: Indeed. There are, I think there are a lot of moving parts here. Uh, so first and foremost, the Lee bak and Park geun administrations are conservative administrations. And uh, with regards to political ideology in South Korea, between left and right, liberal and conservative, insofar as those labels have substantive uh, meaning, liberals tend to be softer on North Korea, so to speak. Uh, they pursue a more dovish uh, policy vis-a-vis or relative to conservatives whose sort of uh, ideological foundation is that of anti-communism. And while North Korea isn't really communist anymore, that sort of translates today as to being tough on North Korea, more hard line. So with any conservative administration, you're going to have a tougher policy towards North Korea. What really confounds the issue though, were the events of 2010. Um, You know, About halfway uh, through Im Young-bak's presidency uh, North Korea allegedly sank the Chonan, which was a naval corvette bombed, I think, somewhat clearly and uncontroversially, insofar as the accusation is concerned, Yongkyung Island. After which, you had what were called the, uh, 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 there were stringent measures passed following the sinking of the Chonan, which basically cut all, effectively cut all economic activities between North and South Korea. And then during uh, the A administration, which had effectively continued these, they they hadn't necessarily tightened the screws, but they hadn't loosened them either. Nothing had really changed. And in 2016, in response to what were perceived as you know, continued provocations by North Korea, the development of its of its uh, ballistic missile technology and additional testing of nuclear weapons, it had uh, temporarily, technically speaking, shut down the Kaesong industrial complex, which again was that uh, a collaborative economic space. Open in, uh, uh, first established in 2002, where you have um, South Korean capitalists or managers who are supervising North Korean labor for the production of materials and goods.
0: So uh, with all of that conflict over the last eight or nine years, what set the stage so nicely, uh, the run-up to the events of what's occurred this week with with some new exciting developments between the Koreas, was the amount of diplomatic activity surrounding the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Games. And some of it was traditional, some of it was sport diplomacy, and some of it was symbolic diplomacy. And there was so much going on that it was kind of difficult to keep up with. So, to review just some of the major events surrounding the Peace Olympics, the two Koreas enter the opening ceremonies together under the blue and white flag of a unified Korea. How cool was that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a symbolically rich and an emotional um, event. It's, it's not the first time it's happened, uh, first was in 2000 in Sydney for the Games. Uh, but when it does happen, I think it's a reminder of what could be and what once was, and of the you know the what is the devastation and the tragedy of national division.
0: You said on Twitter this week at Stephen Denny eighty six that sports like nationalism can unite and or divide, and that sometimes the two are synonymous. So what else did we observe in terms of inter Korean nationalism at these Olympic Games?
1: There was, as as listeners probably know, a uh, a joint North South women's hockey team with uh, a number of North Korean athletes joining their South Korean compatriots uh, to play against other teams uh, under a sort of a United Korean banner. And while it was at first a bit controversial, the players were upset. uh, South Korean people were a little upset. I think that that changed as they played. Now they didn't perform particularly well. They didn't win any games and they had trouble scoring goals. But I think by the end of it, it was genuinely seen as uh, something which uh, was good. And there was, the, there, there was a well-documented a departure of the North Korean athletes uh, and, uh, you know, goodbyes being said, tears being shed, which I think really sort of um, underscored the, uh, the continuing perhaps desire for a unified Korea even though I think attitudes are a bit harder than they used to be towards the idea of unification. But there was a kind of pan-Korean nationalism, not in, a, not in a, a, the nasty sense, but in the, in the good sort of unifying, transcending division sense of two you know, culturally similar people who share a rich history being brought together despite this lingering, uh, continuing divide. That, mm. um, you know, it really, it, t- it touches people of, of who are Korean and not Korean, who are young and old, despite, um, you know, the difficulties of the division
0: itself. There was also the widely reported handshake between President Moon Jae-in and uh, DPRK envoy Kim yo jung, Kim Jong-un's sister, and the director of the Propaganda and Agitation Department of the Workers' Party of Korea, which is the governing party of North Korea. Why was this such a significant event? Kim Yo-jong
1: is a, uh, a member of the royal class of North Korea, that is, Uh, an envoy from the highest ranks of North Korean society, Uh, the the Kim family, who represent the so-called Baekdu bloodline, the people with the the natural right to rule over, uh, at least in North Korea, the the country. So her presence there uh, signified a, a seriousness to deal with uh, the Moon Jae-in administration. There having been sort of um, some back and forth, some, some uh, position signaling that they were both willing to talk to one another. You know, Kim Jong Un saying in his New Year's speech that you know his desire for North Korea to participate in the Olympics. Moon Jae-in accepting that overture and stating that he wished he wished to, and indeed did execute a peace Olympics with the arrival of Kim Yo Jong. It was uh, and the delivery of a note that was inviting you know Moon Jae-in to North Korea. Uh, sort of signified a willingness uh, among major players at the you know at the at the top of the political ladder uh, between North and South Korea.
0: American Vice President Mike Pence came off looking like a bit of a thug at the Olympic opening ceremonies. What happened there?
1: He he threw a lot of shade on the event. That is uh, for certain. There are some very memorable images of. Um, you know, leaders from relevant nations sitting up in the VIP box, you know, watching the opening games. And you've got Kim Yo-jung in the back sitting uh, near next to Moon Jae-in and Mike Pence. Steel faced, no indication that he had even recognized Kim Yo-jung's existence. Notably did not uh, see her or any other of the North Korean envoys for a meeting. Didn't pose for any photo ops, no handshake a la Moon. And it was clearly, as he stated, a, a deliberate strategy to show that the U.S. is or doesn't want to be portrayed as being, you know, lured in by Pyongyang's charm offensive and that he, he certainly sent that message loud and clear. Now, the way it was interpreted by many was that the United States was uh, missing an opportunity to uh, take advantage of a situation wherein dialogue could be reestablished, where uh, we could walk back from the precipice a bit, because you know, before the Olympics, it was, it was, uh, it was. A, tensions were high, to put it mildly, uh, and Mike Pence sort of represented U.S. unwillingness to walk it back some.
0: Yeah, and the Pyeongchang Olympic period over the last few weeks also saw uh, repeated evidence of this American disapproval via Pence of inter-Korean cooperation. He warned against Pyongyang's charm offensive. He promised that the U.S. will continue to tighten sanctions against the North Korean regime. But to me, besides being completely inappropriate behavior, like so offensive to his South Korean hosts, and particularly during this really big moment in the international spotlight for the country, it's also entirely counterproductive. Uh, how do you think South Koreans perceived Pence's behavior?
1: I think that they the the Trump administration as a whole, to which you know Pence is a prominent member, is perceived as um, putting. South Korea at an unnecessary risk. So I think South Koreans are quite partial to, um, to an extent, the maximum pressure strategy, as it's called, being pursued by uh, the Trump administration. Uh, you know, opinions of the U.S. itself remain high. Opinions of Donald Trump are are quite low, very, very low, because his they see him as being somewhat reckless. And while I wouldn't portray Pence as reckless. He's certainly not as loose with the tongue as as Donald Trump. Uh, And he has a much more, um, let's say, focused message. The South Koreans are not disaggregating one from the other. They belong to the same administration. And I think the unwillingness to show any sort of um, willingness to pursue an alternative at the Olympics, at least symbolically, as what was portrayed in photos and in pictures, is an indication that the U.S. is perhaps uh not willing to seek alternative diplomatic strategies that could reduce tensions uh, um, which are most notably felt by those living in Seoul and in South Korea. Yeah,
0: there was an interesting look behind the diplomatic curtain in a piece published at the Washington Post last month regarding a meeting that was supposed to take place between the vice presidents and the North Koreans on February 10th. So the Blue House, the presidential residence in Seoul, was going to be the neutral meeting place. The DPRK pulled out less than two hours before they were due to meet. What happened there?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not really sure what exactly happened. I think, uh, you know, the the White House, uh, Pence's team had released a message saying, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as it looked. We were actually willing to meet and North Koreans wouldn't meet us. So if anything, I just take away from that a lot of symbolic value of the, uh, you know, the, the loggerheads that the U.S. and North Korea are at. And uh, not a diplomatic impasse because it can be overcome, I'm sure. But it's at, if not an all-time low, pretty close to it uh, with regards to how, the U.S. thinks about North Korea and vice
0: versa. And the cancellation came as Kim Yo-jong and Kim Yong-nam, presidents of the Presidium of the Supreme People's Assembly of North Korea, which is the DPRK's nominal head of state, delivered a handwritten note from Kim Jong-un inviting President Moon to visit North Korea for what's going to be the third ever inter-Korean summit. The President uh, Moon apparently responded by saying, let's create the environment for that to be able to happen. And now that the invitation's been confirmed, How do you think the United States is interpreting these events?
1: I think the United States is playing catch-up. I think what the U.S. missed was an opportunity to coordinate a diplomatic strategy with its ally, South Korea. And by throwing shade or a cold shoulder on the whole event, it kind of, it put Moon in a difficult position to push the agenda forward on his own. I think closer coordination to prevent, say, a wedge being driven between the U.S. and South Korea is most desirable. Uh, And with the U.S. reacting rather than acting in concert with uh, Moon Jae-in's administration, it puts them in a difficult position, and I think a less than a desirable diplomatic position.
0: The Olympic rapprochement between the two Koreas is happening during a particularly chaotic period for American political leadership. There's still no American ambassador in Seoul. And the offer to Victor D. Cha for the ROK ambassador position was rescinded last month by the Trump administration, supposedly because his views on North Korea weren't hardline enough. The top U.S. diplomat on North Korea, Joseph Yun, who's also in favor of compromise and diplomacy with the North, announced his decision to retire last week. And now there's talk that George W. Bush era holdover and human mustache John Bolton will be moving in to fill the vacuum in the American government's Korea file. What's going on in the West Wing?
1: What's going on in the West Wing? That's a good question. I don't know exactly. I think what we do know, as we see with the number of resignations and the constant shuffling of staff, is that it is very difficult to get qualified, um, appropriate people to fill uh, important positions within the administration in the United States uh, and abroad. So, again, the, the as you put it, the chaotic period for American political leadership really just the lack of leadership is i think further exacerbating uh the the disconnect between washington and seoul and uh washington further making it more difficult for washington to anticipate or act in concert with seoul and if it's left to react to events taking place on the peninsula rather than and anticipating them or working with its ally to uh to take the initiative
0: yeah, a White House best characterized by chaos and confusion is scary as hell because a war, even a limited war, even a so called bloody nose strategy of limited attack on North Korea would include an unthinkable human cost. Vox Media recently published Here's What War with North Korea Would Look Like, a really terrifying article that suggests that a war on the peninsula wouldn't be as bad as you think. It'd be much, much worse. According to estimates from the Nonpartisan Congressional Research Service, North Korea could launch 10,000 rockets per minute at Seoul, which would probably kill more than 300,000 South Koreans in the opening days of a conflict. 300,000. That's without using nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons at all. If you include potential use of, for instance, North Korea's reserves of deadly sarin gas or its arsenal of smallpox, yellow fever, anthrax, A sustained chemical weapons attack would kill more than 2 million South Koreans. It would injure another 7 million. In an October 2017 report, researchers from Harvard's Belfer Center noted that small quantities of anthrax that would be equivalent to a few bottles of wine could kill up to half the population of South Korea's capital. And then there's the potential use of a North Korean or American nuclear weapon launched in the fog of war. The whole thing is really worth a read. It's really sobering. Any thoughts on this?
1: Uh, it's depressing to think about. I think that you should send this report to Senator Lindsey Graham and other war hawks in the United States who talk about war over there, or who think that uh, a limited war is possible, or that a war over there is is, is winnable. I think at this point, destruction would ensue, um, and a lot of death. Military option, as sometimes said, is not really an option at all.
0: Denny, we sometimes forget that it's the unsung heroes behind the scenes of the fast-moving events on the Korean Peninsula who deserve a lot of credit for where we're at today. Of course, I'm talking about the Foreign Minister's Meeting on Security and Stability on the Korean Peninsula that happened in Vancouver on January 16th of this year, organized by the Canadian government. Were you at the meeting? Unfortunately, I was not. So this one-day conference was organized by Canadian Foreign Minister Christia Freeland and American Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to, quote, meet to demonstrate solidarity in opposition to North Korea's dangerous and illegal actions and work together to strengthen diplomatic efforts towards a secure, prosperous, and denuclearized Korean peninsula. That's from the official Government of Canada website. Participating countries included Belgium, Colombia, Denmark, India, New Zealand, Japan, Norway, Turkey, Thailand, the Philippines, in fact, most of the countries who fought under the UN flag during the original Korean War from 1950 to 1953. But tellingly, not China and not Russia. So what did you make of this weird event? Some people say, some diplomats are saying that it was basically a forum designed for Secretary of State Tillerson to push back against the more hawkish elements of his own government. What do you think?
1: That's an interesting theory, uh, hypothesis, perhaps, that I think it's it's understood or maybe hoped, really, that the State Department under the direction of Tillerson uh, is pursuing a a more dovish or a more conciliatory approach towards the North Korea problem and North Korea itself. If this forum, which excluded those who would disagree with the United States by default, namely China and Russia, it certainly seems like a gathering of the choir, such that Tethersen could perhaps be trying to uh, shore up Those who uh, support his approach to the Korean Peninsula, which I think is most of the U.S. allies and and interested partners, including all who you just listed. I haven't seen any results from this quite yet, and I'm not sure how it was all quite taken in, but uh, I'll be interested to hear uh, if anything comes of it.
0: What frustrated me a lot about the conference is that it clearly indicated that the rest of the world continues to see the North Korean issue as an international issue. And to me, ultimately, it's got to be looked at as a domestic Korean issue. Like the national division of Korea is always going to be the underlying problem. Am I completely off base with that opinion?
1: I think, no, not entirely. I think you are 50% right, maybe 65% right. (laughs) The, the, The Korean conflict is in part, if not largely, a Korean issue. However, it is also an international issue. There is, um, let me illustrate this by referring to a great book. Uh, The scholar, the the historian and scholar of Korea, specifically the Korean War, Wada Haruki, latest book, which adds uh, insight and findings Uh, based on archival material of the Korean War, the Korean conflict from 1950 to 1953, is entitled The Korean War in International History. And it's very clear reading through it that he sees a a moment wherein the Korean War was more like a civil war, and the moment at which the civil war became an international conflict. And I think that is a way that we can think about in terms of framing uh, the Korean problem.
0: Interesting. Okay, thanks for that pushback. That makes sense to me. I still kind of see it as primarily Korean, but I understand it's international as well. So what role does a nation like Canada have to play in what's happening right now? Because this uh, summit really seemed like uh, a bow to the United States and not actually something that was intended to be helpful to South Korea or to finding a real solution on the peninsula, it seemed like it was more about caging North Korea. What role does Canada have to play in uh, what's happening right now diplomatically?
1: It's a good question. It's, it's, one with, uh, it's difficult to say exactly. I think like other important players who have had a historical role uh, in the Korean Peninsula, it's finding those nooks and crannies through which it can uh, negotiate or otherwise engage or play a, 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 a special role and either brokering negotiations, or say leveraging a um, a national identity that is distinct from an American one for uh, productive purposes. Specifically, I think a lot of people understand or see you know, Canadians as more amenable to dialogue, whereas the US is more likely to take a more hard-nosed approach. I think some of that is just structural, the United States having the presence that it does the world over with a large military, uh, where as Canada does not have that, uh, no other countries really have that for that matter, yet it's you know culturally linguistically similar it's close to the United States and it's often uh, involved in is- international issues that the u s is also involved in, but it doesn't carry that same baggage. There was a special delegation that went to North Korea to negotiate the release of Pastor Lin, who had been incarcerated there, I think is a case in point of a alternative role that Canada can play in order to bring about what's called a more favorable results, minor though they be. Uh, and I think that is probably where I stand on that issue. It's just, it's, it's hard for uh, any country to play a larger role than the United States or South Korea, if only because of, of the issue of scale and the fact that North Korea itself is most interested in dealing directly with South Korea or the United States. But that doesn't preclude, uh, say, Canada from playing a more special niche role, a la Sweden or others. Could it
0: be helpful for Prime Minister Trudeau to do some shuttle diplomacy between Seoul and Pyongyang wearing a handbook? Would that be helpful?
1: Uh, Good question. Symbolically, it would be entertaining, that's for sure.
0: Pivoting now to a couple of questions about your own work. Uh, Some of your academic research looks at whether people who were socialized under democratic political conditions have national identities different from those who came of age under autocracy. Your work is focused on citizens of both Koreas, correct? That's correct. So you've compared responses between native South Koreans and resettled North Korean migrants. Taking advantage of the conditions of a natural experiment to isolate the effects of both growing up autocratic and exposure to democratic institutions. What have you discovered?
1: Well, I think I have discovered that institutions matter. Whether you grow up or come of age under democratic political and social institutions Mm -hmm. or autocratic political and social institutions will affect what you think defines the conditions of nationhood and belonging, such that... If you are a Democrat by upbringing, you will have a more, a relatively more open and inclusive uh, understanding of what it means to belong to the nation vis-a-vis those who grew up under conditions of autocracy.
0: On March 2nd, you participated in a panel discussion with Chris David Laroche at the PoliSci Speaker Series at the University of Guelph in Ontario on North Korea in the age of Trump. Tell us more about what you discussed.
1: So I looked at the differences in opinions across cohorts. In South Korea regarding their attitudes towards North Korea their attitudes towards unification and their attitudes towards uh, what we often refer to as unification in progress or what they think of North Koreans who have resettled in South Korea what you see and it's not totally unrelated to the work we just talked about with regards to political systems and institutions is that younger south koreans who came of age in the era of democracy or who came of age more recently have markedly different attitudes than everyone else with regards to what they think of north korea that is whether they see it in uh ethnic kinship terms so as one of us you know the the uh, sort of unique social category to korea uri that is us one of us our whether they see it as such or as a brother. Uh, If you look at those sorts of responses, you see that younger people are far less likely to think to see North Korea as such. When it comes to unification, then, not surprisingly, uh, the people who show the least amount of support for national reunification are these young folks. And when we're talking about young folks, we're talking about ages 18 to 35, maybe 18 to 42. This basically captures the population who grew up in, under democracy, and then with regards to unification and action, because you know if you ask someone what they think about North Korea, they might think of the state, nuclear weapons, uh, provocations, what have you, and uh, they might naturally then have a quite negative opinion. So what if you talk about people, North Korean people? Um, a lot of a lot of data on uh, exists on what South Koreans think of new migrants, of which there are increasingly many in South Korea, which is an increasingly pluralistic place you find that uh, while it's not exactly negative, their uh, feelings of, of, of closeness or affinity towards North Korea is significantly lower than uh, older age cohorts, those who came of age uh, during very different times. So you know, the, the, the takeaway just descriptively, not making any causal claims here, is simply that younger people have very different ideas about who they are and, um, and about North Korea. And then if you want to take it further, it would be that it's due to these conditions under which they grew up.
0: And I guess it's too early to say what influence the uh, Trump era is actually going to have on Koreans in either of the two Koreas. But do you think that this hostility from the United States could act as a way of drawing the Korean people together, Uh, even this generational cohort that seemed to be less interested in unification?
1: Yeah, that would be a tough sell. It's certainly possible. But I think if anything... South Koreans, especially younger South Koreans, they're not as optimistic. They're not pessimistic either. They're more discerning. You know, they've, they've experienced a period of warming relations between North and South Korea that didn't have the desired effect. You know, a lot, the recent memory for a lot of young South Koreans is 2010 when a naval corvette was sunk and a, an a island was bombed. Uh, so that they would they would be pushed to feel closer to North Korea seems unlikely. I think, if anything, they're just going to feel farther away from the United States. And I think that you know, South Koreans are a bit more confident in South Korea itself. Uh, that is not uh, a claim that goes uh, without challenge, uh, but it is one that I find generally true. And I think that, you know, a country with, well, depending on how you measure it, 11th or 12th largest economy with a relatively large military, I mean, currently buttressed by U.S. forces, I think it's pretty capable of of having its own strong national identity. So would it push them closer to North Koreans? Maybe relatively so. Would it make them feel uh, close to? Overall, probably not. It probably just makes them feel farther away from the U.S.
0: And ultimately, with the diplomatic breakthroughs of the last few weeks, are you feeling more hopeful for peace on the peninsula?
1: I am cautiously optimistic. I think it would be uh, foolhardy to be too excited either way. I think it's irresponsible to simply assume that North Korea will, you know, renege on any agreements that it makes um, and that this is doomed to fall apart from the start because North Korea is is not negotiable. But at the same time, to see this as like a a real breakthrough, a a new era, Sunshine 2.0, I think would also be a bit naive. Hope springs eternal and that's not such a bad thing. Let's give peace a chance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Just be cautiously optimistic, I think, should be one's position at this
0: point. I'm going to need a new title for this episode from uh, a new era, Sunshine Policy 2.0, scratching out on notepad. Okay, got to brainstorm something new. Stephen Denny is an Asian Institute doctoral fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and an associate at the Innovation Policy Lab at the University of Toronto. He's also a senior editor at sino His dissertation on the contemporary national identity of South Koreans and resettled North Korean migrants is due to be published later Later this year. Stephen, thanks for speaking with me
1: today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: That's the Korea file for this month. Throw this podcast a few won at patreon.com forward slash the Korea file. Every contribution helps. Thanks. And from 1979, music on this episode is Gurioman. By Ye Jin. To find out more about Stephen Denny's research on democracy, autocracy, and national identity, visit scdenny.net. Follow him on Twitter at StephenDenny86. I'm on there, too, at Andre Margulay. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and infosoul Find them and like them on Facebook. You'll find The Korea File there, too, with links and current news and commentary about the peninsula, This episode has been co-produced with Ricochet Media's award-winning Unpacking the News podcast in Montreal, Quebec. Check back wherever you found this podcast in early April for a new episode. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening.